Good morning, Cornerstone Church. So, I'm going to start off this morning being somewhat transparent. I know that sometimes my sermons can be hard to digest. I confess. I know that I take many twists and turns, many detours and leaps, and you have to sometimes run really hard to catch up with me. And so today I decided to give us the application in the beginning of the sermon, right? To make it easy for everybody. You don't have to follow along if you don't want. I'm going to give you the application and the insight at the very beginning. And here it is. Always do your best, but never do more. Huh? Always do your best, but never do more. Because to go above and beyond the assignment that you have been given is disobedience. There it is. You can close your books and everybody can take a nap for the rest of this 30 minutes. <laughs> Always do your best, but never do more. This was a lesson that my mother tried to teach me when I came out of the army full of myself, full of vitality and vigor and ready to take on the world and to make my mark. Calvin, always do your best, but never do more. I didn't take her advice. I went to work for a company that was in transition. And they were changing their business model to develop new products for new streams of revenue, new streams of income. And I was so excited to be on the ground floor. And so I worked really hard. I gave 105, 110, 115% and my reputation preceded me. And I was placed in positions of authority. And mistakenly, I did not recognize those promotions as being a reward for my diligence. I recognized those promotions as being egged on to do even more. So I served harder. I was more and more driven until one day, my boss called me into his office. And he sat me down and said, Calvin, you are an asset to this company. We really appreciate all that you bring to the table. I'm feeling really good about myself. Yeah, I know I'm an asset. I know I'm getting this thing done. And he said to me, but Calvin, you need to slow down just a little bit. Huh? Slow down? I'm developing this business model. I'm making money for the company. What are you talking? He said, Calvin, just, you need to relax a little bit and just slow down. I didn't take his advice. And that made me work even harder. I'm going to prove, I know you're trying to look out for me, make sure that I don't get burned out, but I'm telling you, I have this under control. I'm driving, I'm running with the vision. Calvin, you really need to slow down. I didn't follow his advice. I kept on overdoing it and overdoing it until one day he wrote me up for insubordination. Huh? Yes, yes. I was written up because I was doing too much. 
I couldn't understand that I was insulted. What are you, I'm giving you all that I have. I, I'm doing 115%. And he says, that's the problem, Calvin. The problem is that nobody can keep up with you and you're causing everybody to have to work so much harder. You're overdoing it. I learned the lesson that day. Always do your best, but never do more. Moses learned this same lesson. In the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 6 through 12, the Bible says that Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock. Speak to that rock. Speak, Moses, to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Speak to the rock. That's all you've got to do, Moses. Very simple assignment. So the Bible says Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as the Lord commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses wanted to give a monologue. He said to the people, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? God didn't tell Moses to say anything to these people. He did not tell Moses to berate these people. He simply said, talk to the rock. The rock's going to give water. No, 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 that's not enough. Moses has to overdo it. You rebels, do you need me to give you some water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice, overdoing it, overplaying his hand. God says, speak, Moses struck. Didn't strike it once, he struck it twice in his frustration with the people. And water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Mission accomplished, right? Mission accomplished. The people wanted water, the people have their water. But this is an important caution. While God is invested in each of us accomplishing the assignments that he has given to us, God is equally concerned that we accomplish the work in the manner he has prescribed. Do it the way he said do it. Follow the pattern that God has given. He's concerned about accomplishing the mission, but God is also concerned about our obedience. And the method is just as important as the mission. And your precise obedience is just as important as the work you've been called to do. This idea flies in the face of contemporary ministry philosophy, where the work of the Lord is to be accomplished by any means necessary. And you can imagine where I would go with that thought where we believe that the mission of Jesus Christ must be accomplished by any means necessary. The idea that God is more invested in the ends rather than the means. And so Moses felt like he had done a good work. The people were satiated. That's all that really mattered, right? No. Verse 12 says, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me, 
enough. Uh-oh, now we get to the root of the problem here. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of these Israelites. And pause right there. Let's hear again how God interpreted Moses' hyperambition. God says the reason Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock was because Moses didn't trust God enough. Let me bring it closer home. Moses didn't follow God's strict command because Moses felt like God didn't know what he was doing. Moses felt like he knew better than God what the people needed. God said, give the people some water. Moses said, these people need to be rebuked and corrected. God, you're too patient with them. I know a better way because you do not trust me enough, God says. Yes, God wanted to feed the people. God wanted to give the people water. But God's larger goal was that Moses would be an example of what a relationship with God looked like. He was to speak to the rock. Ask and you shall receive. But Moses was doing too much. And even though he did accomplish God's ultimate aim of providing water to the people, Moses found himself out of God's order. Write that one down. Moses was out of order. What's the big deal? Well, it may not be a big deal to you and to me, but it was a big deal to God. And Moses' punishment was severe. God says that because Moses went above and beyond what his assignment was, you will not bring this community into the land that I give them. That's a harsh punishment because he was doing too much, <laughs> because he was too ambitious, because he was overzealous. Do your best, never do more. This is the problem we see with the Pharisees and Sadducees to do more. Moses, as we know, Moses was passionate about serving God. No problem there. Moses was passionate about serving God. But Moses wanted to serve God out of his own strength. Moses wanted to serve God out of his own understanding. And any such service is a disservice to God. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus Christ reveals himself to Paul, to Saul, on the road to Damascus. He converted him right there in the middle of the road. And over the next few days, he gave Paul the apostle his mission. Paul was being sent to the Gentiles. That's the mission, to go and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That is a very broad group of people, all of the Gentiles. Gentiles is everyone who is not a Jew. Paul was being sent to the whole world. And he mentioned that in our text today at verse 14, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the uncultured, both to the wise and to the foolish. I have been sent to everyone, basically. And these are the parameters of Paul's assignment. Basically, Paul is being sent to the whole world, to every Gentile in every place. 
That's a big assignment. You've heard the old saying, how do you eat an elephant? Who knows the answer? How do you eat an elephant? You can just say it. One bite at a time. Paul's mission field is as large as an elephant. It encompasses the whole world. Paul is only one man. The, the mission that he's on could take many, many lifetimes. But Paul has an idea. This is a good idea. Paul figures, if I can preach the gospel in Rome, if I can cause the people of Rome to be converted to the faith, the kingdom of God could undergo exponential growth. He was right. In verse 8 he says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Everybody's talking about the church that is at Rome. Everybody's paying attention to the latest trends that come out of Rome. Everybody is imitating and emulating the Romans. That's how it is even today. When I was traveling abroad in the military, I was always struck by how people would treat me when they found out I was from the U.S. I don't know if you guys know it or not, but Americans are revered around most of the world. Did you know that? Our music, our manner, our culture is emulated over the globe. People look up to the United States of America. People in distant lands rehearse our national anthem. They dream of coming to America, land of the free, home of the brave. We are the envy of the nations. And Rome enjoyed a similar advantage. So it only makes sense that Paul considers Rome to be the crown jewel for the kingdom of God. If I can plant the seeds of the gospel in Rome, it can grow exponentially. Everybody follows their path. That was Paul's aim. And that was Paul's desire from the book of Acts all the way throughout his ministry. Paul was trying to make it to Rome. He says in verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you in my prayers. He had never even met these people. He had never been to Rome, but he was unceasingly before God talking about the Romans. He wanted to get to Rome to preach the gospel. I'm talking to God about you all the time, continuously bringing you up before him, repeatedly asking him to make a way for me to get to you. I really want to be there. I really want to have some seeds sown among the Romans. It's a good idea, and it's all for the kingdom. He goes on to say in verse 15, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also. I am eager. I am zealous. There's nothing wrong with zeal. There's nothing wrong with being zealous. There's nothing wrong with being filled with great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause, especially the cause of Christ. There's nothing wrong with zeal. But Paul the Apostle says this, that zeal must always be tempered by knowledge of God's will. 
zeal, enthusiasm, excitement must always be tempered by knowledge of God's will. Human enthusiasm, human passion must always take a back seat to the plans and the purposes of God. Otherwise, my overzealousness to do the will of God becomes disobedience and I overshoot the calling that God has given me and I find myself outside of God's will, outside of God's design for my life. Always do your best, but never do more. In verse 10, Paul continues, always in my prayers, requesting if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, if perhaps now, at last, by the, if perhaps, what is he talking about? What does he mean by this? If perhaps, you're called to the Gentiles already. But this is the perfect example of zeal being tempered by knowledge of God's will. This is the perfect example of human passion giving way to God's design. Because realistically, realistically, if Paul wanted, if he really wanted to make it to Rome, all he had to do was stop preaching in Galatia, stop preaching in Philippi, stop preaching in Ephesus, stop raising so much turmoil around the world, and just buy himself a ticket, get on a boat, and sail to Rome. That's all he had to do. Rome wasn't that far away from where he was. If he really wanted to get to Rome, that's all he had to do. Stop preaching to everybody else, get on a boat, go to Rome. Why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he just do that? What's the complication here? If that's where you want to be, why aren't you there? If his main goal and the capstone of his ministry is to make it to Rome and preach the gospel, why doesn't he just go? If Rome is always and unceasingly on his mind, their plight, their needs, their massive potential for kingdom impact, why is he not already there in Rome? Because Paul is not certain that God wants him in Rome. He has a passion, he has a zeal, but Paul is not certain that God wants him in if Perhaps, that's a signal that Paul is uncertain as to whether or not he's being called there. And because Paul is not certain, he dares not make a move in Rome's direction until it is clear in his spirit that God is calling him to this place. That is zeal, that is passion being tempered by knowledge of God's will. In the very first verse, Paul tells us, he declares himself to be a willing slave, a voluntary slave of Jesus Christ. Meaning that Paul does not fly under his own banner. But Paul the apostle flies and works under the banner of another, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the master. Paul is not serving his own zeal. Paul is not serving his own ambition or enthusiasm. Paul is under obligation to Jesus Christ alone. His life is not his own. His ministry is not his own. His time is not his own. And his itinerary is produced by Jesus Christ himself, the captain of his salvation, the chief architect of his ministry. Paul is under obligation. Paul is under orders. And even though he really wants to be in Rome, and in his mind it makes most sense, Jesus, if you really want to have an impact on the world, you should send me to Rome. 
but he doesn't take it upon himself to go above and beyond the call that Christ has given. That's what slaves do. They follow instructions. They do their very best, but they never do more. Paul is not serving in accordance with his own interest, with his own zeal, but according to the will of God, always in my prayers, requesting if perhaps now, at last, I've been praying for it for a long time, I've been asking God to open the door to Rome for a long time, if perhaps now, finally, at last, by the will of God, That's submission. That's submission. I have a zeal, I have a passion for this community, for these people, but I'm not going to move until I'm certain that God is calling me. I am not going to allow my zeal and my passion to cause me to move beyond and above what God has called me to do. I'm gonna do my best, I'm not gonna do more. Because to do more, is disobedience. If perhaps now at last by the will of God I will succeed in coming to you. It is the will of God that constrains Paul to wait. It is God's will that has placed Paul's ministry in this holding pattern. And Paul refuses to breach heaven's protocol. Paul refuses to land his plane until heaven's air traffic controller gives him permission. Until then, I'll just hold the pattern. Human passion, even passion that desires to do God's will, human passion does not want to be subject to God's timing. We must not make the fatal mistake of confusing our own passion for God's will. I'll say that again. We must not make the mistake of confusing our human passion for God's will. Hmm. And today such a message is warranted like no other time since I've been a believer. Because nowadays there are so many good intentioned saints who are making shipwreck of their lives because they have become slaves to their own passions for ministry, despite not having God's calling or commission. They want to do ministry, but they have decided to do ministry their own way. They want to serve, but they want to serve according to the dictates of their own hearts and not in accordance with the will of God. I told you all about the lady, good lady, good lady, serving as an elder in a church. And she had a falling out with the leadership because she wanted to see more women in ministry. And she took up the mantle of getting more women involved in ministry and we deserve to have a place to table and we have a season. And she destroyed the church because she was so passionate about getting women into ministry she misunderstood her own personal passion, her own personal viewpoint as the viewpoint of God, and she was incorrect. 
and she ended up tearing down the house of God. And she thought she was doing God's service. A terrible story, a very sad story. Her intentions were good. Paul's intentions are good. He didn't want to go to Rome to make a name for himself. Paul wasn't trying to make his name great. He had a good intention. He wanted to serve the people. He says so in verse 11. He says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you to the end that you may be established. He wants to do a good work. He just wants to bless them. He wants to share his faith with them by way of impartation. I like that. There's only so much a letter can do, you see, or so Paul thought. There's only so much a letter can do. There's something about fellowship. There's something about people being face-to-face, eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart that imparts spiritual gifting, even without words. We experienced it right here last week. Maybe you experienced it. James Halstead was here. I'm talking about impartation now. I enjoyed his sermon. Everybody enjoyed him last week? James Halstead, very good, very good, very good. I learned a lot from listening to him. But that wasn't the main course. I don't know if you caught this. That wasn't the main course. There's something about being in the presence of a gifted person that they can impart gifting to you beyond words, just being present with you. That's what Paul wanted to do, was just impart his apostolic anointing to them, to allow them to share in his ministry, to share in his own gifting. Just being present is enough. You've experienced that, right? Did anybody experience that last week? Did anybody leave here last week feeling motivated about evangelism? Anybody? Did anybody leave here last week thinking about how am I going to implement this? How am I going to go and implement this to my neighbors, to my friends, to my... And you felt motivated about it. That didn't come from teaching. That didn't come from instruction. That came from impartation. That is one person sharing his spiritual gifting with you and allowing you to participate. That's what Paul wants to do. Paul didn't want to write a letter. He wants to be present with them because there are some things that are better caught than taught. Isn't that true? There are some things that are easier caught than taught. Sometimes I'm trying to explain something to you and I'm having a hard time finding the words. But I see this sometimes, especially in our elder meetings. I'm trying to find the words to talk to the elders about a topic, and I'm not saying it exactly right, but after a while the light bulb comes on and they get it. Without, I didn't do anything. The gifting just transfers. I see what you're saying. Oh, you see it now, good. That's an impartation. That is me opening myself up and allowing you to share in the, that's what Paul wants to do. He just wants to get there because his faith is so strong. He knows that just being present and being an example for them, they will pick up more than he could ever say with words. That's why it's good for us to gather together. That's why it's good for us to come together because we share spiritual giftings even when we don't realize we're doing it. We encourage one another, oftentimes without even using words. I'm sitting here sometime and looking around the church and I see somebody and I just feel encouraged. I feel reinvigorated, revived. How does that happen? That's the spirit speaking to spirit. That's an impartation. (laughs) 
so that when I'm sad, I can go to someone in the church who has joy, and that joy can rub off on me. Yeah, that's impartation. Just a side note, when I'm preaching, really, 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 when I'm preaching, that's all I'm trying to do is impart. Get the information, get the knowledge, get whatever, but take the impartation. Because I know that if you get the spirit of it, You'll figure the rest of it out later. You need the spirit of it. That's what we're supposed to be doing for one another, is sharing our lives. Sharing our giftings by way of impartation. That's all Paul wants to do. It is a good, worthy cause. He is not a rebel. That's what he wanted to do for the Romans. He says, all I want to do is be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. That's all I want to do is have some fellowship time with you. And to the human ear, that sounds like a praiseworthy project, doesn't it? That sounds like a wonderful thing, Paul. Well, yeah, Paul, I'll pay for your mission trip so you can go and encourage them in fellowship and impart spirit. That's a good cause, man. That's a worthy, praiseworthy cause, Paul. Mm-hmm. That's how it sounds to the human ear. It's not the way it sounds to God. Hmm. Paul goes on to explain that I desire to obtain some fruit among you also, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. It makes sense. He's sent to the Gentiles, so he wants to bear fruit among the Romans. That's a good cause. The Romans are Gentiles. Not only that, the Romans are the most prominent, the most influential Gentiles in existence at the time. It all makes sense. It sounds like a good ministry strategy. It all makes sense from a human perspective. And if conversion of the Gentiles were a purely human project, then Paul wouldn't hesitate to make, make it to Rome. But we all know this. Salvation is not a human project. Salvation is not a human project. And my passion, no matter how strong my passions may be, my passions cannot save a single soul. No matter how much I yearn to bless a people group, no matter how my heart aches for them, I have not been called or assigned to follow my own passion, but the pattern of Jesus Christ. And if Paul had decided to go ahead to Rome, absent heaven's commission, had he decided, you know what, this is a good idea, I'm just going to move on it. God can catch up with me later. I'm going to go ahead and do it and God can bless it later. His work would have been completely in vain. Paul, like us, must wait on the calling of God. We must not overshoot God's assignment. We must do our best. We must give our very best. But we must be careful not to overstep the customs and the boundaries that God has provided us. So after saying all of this, after declaring that he is eager, he loves them, he wants to be there, he wants to fellowship, he wants to do all these great things, he concludes in verse 13 and says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that often I have planned to come to you and I've been prevented so far. 
in my zeal, in my passion, I really want to get there, but something is preventing me. What's preventing Paul? God is preventing Paul. Is the devil preventing him? No, there's no height, there's no depth, there's no principality that can, can thwart the plan of God. No, the devil's not pre preventing him. God is preventing him. God, through a myriad of different circumstances, is preventing Paul from getting to Rome. Because Rome, for, for Paul, Rome was not a part of God's larger vision for his ministry. And even though Paul was passionate about making it to Rome, God is not at the service of Paul's passions. And you got to hear this, God is not at the service of your passion. No matter how hot, no matter how fiery it may be, God is not subservient to the passions and the zeal of men. Our causes may be honorable causes, that's not the question. Our passions may be justified, that's not the question. God has the final say, and if we are prevented from following our passions, we must follow Paul's example and exercise some patience. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and wait for God to give us the green light to proceed. And if we never receive it, we must never follow our passions. That is what it means to be a slave. To no longer follow my own dream, to no longer follow my own vision and ideas, but to give up my life, to give up my vision, to give up my dreams for the vision that God has for my life. That's what it means to be a slave. To renounce my autonomy, to renounce my liberty. To give up my right to make decisions for myself, to give up my right to self-direction and to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's what it means to be a slave to Jesus Christ. Because my zeal and my passion is not God. My interests and my desires are not God. Higher than the heavens are God's thoughts above my thoughts. Higher than the heavens are God's ways above my ways. Paul was praying to go to Rome because Paul thought he knew the best way to have the most exponential kingdom impact. But Paul in his humility, Paul in his submission to Jesus Christ, refused to implement his own plan unless God gave the green light. Paul did his best but he wouldn't do more. And by the time Paul finally made it to Rome, he made it to Rome in chains. By the time he finally made it to Rome, he made it to Rome and was put in prison. And he was warned that was gonna be the case in the book of Acts. This is what's gonna to happen to the man who goes, to, who goes there. This was gonna to happen to you if you go to Rome. He made it to Rome and he went to Rome and went to prison. He didn't have the kind of impact in Rome that he wanted to have. It didn't work out. It wasn't God's will. What Paul didn't know, and what Paul could have never fathomed, was that his gospels would be, that his messages and epistles would be being read by us 2,000 years after he came. Paul would have never dreamed that his ministry was going to have this kind of an impact on the whole world. 
And so he was trying to get it all done in his one little lifetime. He had his own ideas of how to best serve God. And God said, Paul, you don't know the whole story. You can't know the whole story. Just follow what I'm telling you. It's all going to work out, man. You're going to have the kind of impact you always wanted to have. Just be patient. Follow my lead. Don't try to make me follow yours because you don't know the way. <laughs> I'm not going to give personal testimony, but man, I tell you what. Yeah. Following God's pattern sometimes makes no sense. <laughs> I know ways to get some things done and sometimes I just say, Lord, why don't you just, just, just let me just, let me give you some counsel. God, give me counsel. You're going to counsel God. This doesn't seem right, God. We really, you, you, wait, Calvin, just slow down, man. Slow down. Just follow portion of the world. But allow me to rehorizon you like I did, Paul. Let me show you the bigger picture so that you can see that I'm in control of everything and I have a perfect plan. I don't need your input. I don't need you to explain to me how ministry is to be done. I don't need you to tell me about who has needs. I already know all things. What I'm asking you to do is to trust me enough to just follow my lead. Even when it seems like you're having no personal impact, even when it seems like your ministry doesn't matter to anybody, don't go by your feelings. Know what God has commanded you to do and stay in your lane. God will get all the glory. Let's pray. Father God, it is true that your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways. High above the heavens are your thoughts above our thoughts and your ways above our ways. Sometimes, Lord God, we feel discouraged. Sometimes we feel like our lives are not making a difference, like we're not having kingdom impact at all. Sometimes we feel weak and impotent. Sometimes we feel insignificant in the grander scheme. But Father God, we know that none of these things are true. <laughs> but that your thoughts for us are thoughts of peace and to bring us to an expected end, that you have a plan and that each one of us who calls on the name of Jesus Christ is a part of your plan. We can't see the impact that we're having, Lord, and sometimes that makes us feel like we're not living up to our obligations. But I pray for us today. I pray, Lord God, that you will encourage our hearts, that you will speak your voice, your still small voice into our spiritual ears and cause us to hear what your vision is for our lives. Show us the path in which we should walk and teach us to walk therein. Many of our hearts, Lord God, are filled with all kinds of concerns, concerns for our communities, our nation, concerns for our families. Some of our children are going astray and we are so passionate about bringing them back into the fold. In some cases, we're actually doing too much. We're going beyond what you've called us to do.
we're trying to control. We give up control today, Lord God. It is not our desire, it is not our ambition to change the world. But we ask you, Lord God, to change us. To cause us to be obedient servants and to serve in the vineyard, in the harvest in which we by changing cultures, to not be distracted by changing nations, but to focus and to focus only on those people and those communities where you have called us. Help us not to be drowned and consumed by our own enthusiasm, by our own zeal, but teach us to follow your ways, to walk in your truth, to be guided by your spirit so that in the end we all will hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You did your best, but you didn't do more. In Jesus' name, amen.